When I was growing up, our family had a tradition of putting three, four presents under the tree for each person from different family members. And on Christmas Eve, after the church Christmas Eve service, uh, you could go back, come home and we'd have some time where you could pick one gift from one person and unwrap it. And I was very strategic in that. Wasn't going to pick a gift from my sister. She was six years younger than I was and she didn't understand uh, the importance of that gift because you're stuck with that gift all night. You're going to have to watch your other siblings play with whatever they have. So you have to be very careful in which gift you pick, which meant I wasn't picking anything my mom bought for me because I was going to get the annual socks and underwear, right? And I don't want to chance that. So I'd always pick my dad's gift, hoping, oh, this could be the $6 million man, the evil Knievel stunt bike that I never got, but I'm not bitter. Um, (laughs) Had to be careful. Well, this tradition actually started in my mother's family. She was the baby at this point in her life, although two other children would come later. So she was the youngest of three at about the age of four when it came time to pick gifts. Does she pick her gift from mom or dad? Does she pick it from her older brother or her older sister, who they were best friends together and knew exactly what my mom wanted for Christmas? The box looked the right size, the box weighed the right size and so she said this will be my gift and you have trouble sleeping on Christmas Eve night you're so excited so this was a gift she would play with all night till the next morning it came her turn she opens up the gift to find a box with lumps of coal and that's it she stuck my grandfather and grandmother wouldn't let her open anything else she stuck with that all night. There is still deep joy in my aunt's life over that moment of torturing her little sister with that. I feel this morning that in some ways I'm stuck with a lump of coal. This is such a warm and such a meaningful season. But as Renee said to us this morning, there are difficult parts of the Christmas story. And we need to look at Rachel's part in the story and own it for ourselves. This is a real book that speaks to a real history with real people. And when that happens, life is messy and there is struggle. Matthew begins this Christmas story, as you remember, with his genealogy. And that whole genealogy is very messy, with very real tales of struggle and suffering for God's chosen people. And we get to chapter 3 after the birth of Christ, and there's still a whole lot more struggle and suffering, even for God's people, even the very family of God. Now, how is it you and I need to hear this story? Or maybe you might say, hey, you know what? I, I don't really don't have a struggle this season. I'm not going through it. Well, like, like anything that God gifts to us, it's not just for us. So maybe there's a, somebody that you love who is very, very in touch with Rachel's story today. We've been going through 2 Corinthians in our Bible reading plan, and the book basically just starts out by saying this. God has given us comfort Our God is a God of compassion and a God of comfort. He's given that to you for you, but also he goes on to say in verse 4, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in, in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We all know somebody with a Rachel story. I like what author Crawford Howe says. Holiness people, sanctified people are 
outwardly focused on the lost and the broken. The result of a life wholly given to the Lord and completely blessed by him is that the believer is going to have a deep-seated compassion and concern for hurting people. So maybe your response this morning is just simply, how can I change my prayer life for others? How can I be sensitive to others? Or how can I minister to what Matthew shares here? How can I be a word of comfort and compassion for someone else? So we're going through the witnesses of Christmas. What do they tell us about Jesus? But also, what do they tell us about ourselves and this morning, our ministry to others? Looking at Rachel's story. And listen, this is a story we may want to overlook. Author Ken Langley says, many of us are burdened with numerous griefs, which we are especially keen around the holidays. We may wonder whether God is present in the midst of their pain, as the bereaved of Bethlehem may have wondered, what is going on when Emmanuel is born? Let me get this right. You're saying this is the promised one of God, the hope, the consolation, and all of a sudden we've got Herod doing these horrific things? In the midst of the, of the great moment of history where God himself visits us, there is struggle and there is loss. And it's, it's on every page, really, of the Christmas story. And if we don't address that, Ken Langley says, the Rachels of this world will write us off as hopelessly out of touch. They'll conclude that our Christmas gospel is pretty hollow if we pretend that lowing cattle and angelic voices tell the whole story. We need to hear Rachel's story in the Christmas story and consider her witness. Think about her life, especially in Genesis 35. Think about her life. Her life is a life that's filled with tears. This will be my husband. Nope, you've been tricked. He's been tricked. You're gonna have, he's going to marry your sister, and then eventually he can be your husband. And then she has this long season of not being able to have children and that struggle, which many of us have known. And then after that long struggle, finally be able to have kids, finally she dies giving childbirth on the road to Bethlehem, looks up at her husband and says, name my child Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow. And what do husbands do when wives tell them something to do? Completely ignores that one. And says, this will be the son of my right hand, Benjamin. That's a great name for his son. Better than, hey, my name's son of the great sorrow of my mother. And she dies right there. Her last wish and voice done away with. He will not be named that. And then they basically bury her on the side of the road. Now, Jacob honors her. He put, places a pillar there. And in the writing of Genesis time, the, Moses says, that pill, it's still there to this day but buried on the side of the road as they make their trek to Bethlehem. A life filled with struggle and tears. And then we get to this, this prophecy that Matthew recalls from Jeremiah. I'd encourage you to read Jeremiah 31, this prophecy from verse 15. And Jeremiah is recounting her story, picking that up a thousand years later, and talks about that Rachel again on this road from Bethlehem uh, up north this is where the people of God are being dragged off into captivity. So here they're about to go into exile in chains. They're being gathered near Ramah to be taken away. And he says again, Rachel's weeping again. Because once again, the children of God's people, God's children, are suffering yet again. A voice is heard in Ramah, and it is Rachel weeping inconsolably 
for her lost children. Christian author Wendy Zoba writes, a mother's weeping for her lost children is as bad as it gets in this life. It is God's metaphor for the height of anguish. That's, that's Rachel's story in her life. And then Jeremiah draws that there she is watching the children of God go now into suffering. And then we see his story here in this prophecy recounted in Matthew. And again, God does not hide from the harsh reality of this world, even at Christmas. But what we see here in this voice, it's not Jeremiah's voice, it's thus says the Lord. We see that our God is a God who notices the sufferings of his people and loves them so much that his only son enters into those sufferings and into our griefs and into our brokenness. We don't get a clean, systematic answer in Scripture as to why they're suffering. We know it's because of our brokenness and our sin and the curse we're under because of that. We know that, but there's no clean answer. Jesus doesn't say, no, let me walk you through this. Let me just say this, all the other religions do, and their answers are hollow and horrific. You read the Stoics or the Cynics, or you read what Buddhism would say, that, well, you know, life is a struggle with passion, and so you're always going to have suffering. So here's how you become a great human. Don't be a human. Just pull all of that humanity out of you, all that passion, and just struggle through life and detach yourself from it. Or Hinduism would say, listen, the gods could care less about you. You're just, they, they, they don't even know you're there. You're an accident that happened, and whatever you go through, you're just going to build up karma and just get broken and broken and broken till finally somehow you go back with gods who could care less about you. Or Islam, everything that happens is God's will. That horror in your life, that hurt in your life, that God willed it to happen in your life whether you liked it or not. He just dropped it on you. We don't get an answer. Instead, we get what we need most. We get the person of God. Jesus shows up. He who was without sin entered a world broken by sin. He who knew no suffering, as Hebrews would say, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He came to be one of us. And so here in Matthew, we're reminded again, 700 years after they're taken away, roughly, once again, we have Rachel weeping again. 700 years later, when there is the holy family of God who are leaving because of what Herod has done. If you weren't here last week, Herod was put in power, killed his own family, and here he is trying to keep his power by killing two-year-olds and under after Christmas because he's worried about his reign, his world, his little kingdom. And Matthew sees this as a prophecy fulfilled from Jeremiah 31. And so he says again that there is Rachel weeping on that same area near Bethlehem, that road from Ramah to Bethlehem. Rachel is weeping again. Again, to quote from Ken Langley, has anyone else besides me ever wondered why, if God could send an angel to warn Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt, why didn't he send the angels to the other parents of Bethlehem? If Jesus escaped, why did all those other babies have to die? For that matter, if God ever intervenes to, to deliver, why doesn't he deliver my loved ones? We can wonder why God does what he does and why he doesn't do what he doesn't do. But in Matthew 2, Jesus is not spared from his suffering. Jesus was rescued from Herod only to be, as we quoted together in the Nicene Creed, crucified by Pontius Pilate. 
In Bethlehem, God's son had a narrow escape. But on Golgotha, he died that all of us could escape. Okay? And that's a, it's a hard wrestling. Why, why, why does this happen? Why? We understand that, yes, Jesus escaped Herod, but he escaped Herod so that he could go to the cross and deliver us from evil. In the end, Jesus is the only one, in a very real sense, not delivered from evil. He submitted himself to suffering and death for us. And in that, there is comfort for Rachel and for us that God has entered in, become one of us so that he can redeem us from our sins and from our sufferings. And one day he will set all things right. Jeremiah does not end, by the way, with Rachel's weeping. That's why I'd like for you to go back and read uh, Jeremiah 31. There are tears, but the bulk of that passage is hopeful. Matter of fact, 90 plus percent of Jeremiah 31, who's the weeping prophet, is actually talking about a future that will come. He's letting people know, and it's really God through him letting people know that God has heard Rachel, that he cares about her griefs and our griefs, and he intends to do something about it. The very next verse after that prophecy in Jeremiah 3.16 says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. He doesn't say, okay, time will heal all wounds, everything will be okay. It says, your hope will return, your land will return, and your children will be returned to you. Every I will be dotted, every T will be crossed. Whatever you have lost will be brought back to you. And we see that, so how in the world could there be that kind of care, that kind of, that kind of specific redemption? In, look, we bump into stories where we think, what a wild circumstance. What a wild coincidence. I was listening to Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story one day, and I've never been able to find this, but I heard it one day where he talked about a young man who had been shot and killed by his father. And the father had done it. He knew he had done it, confessed to doing it, and yet they let him off for that murder. Until you know the rest of the story, you don't understand that. The, the son had gone to this high-rise penthouse to see his family. He had struggled with money and he tried to get his mom and dad yet again to give him some money and he could tell from that conversation not only was the answer no but it was really coming from mom mom was the roadblock for him getting the money that he wanted for the umpteenth time and so thinking that if mom was not around dad might relent and give him some of the cash one day he sneaks into the apartment and he takes his dad's gun that he knows is always unloaded, and he loads the gun. Because he knew there was this weird deal that when the dad got mad at mom, or even just in fun, sometimes he'd grab that unloaded gun and follow her around the house, chase her around the house uh, just to torment her and tease her. Don't do that. Well, that's what this guy did. And so this son loads the gun saying, sooner or later, he's going to accidentally fire it and kill my mom, and I'll get my money. He waited days, he waited weeks, he waited months, and nothing happened. And so finally, despondent, depressed, and penniless, he goes up to the top of their apartment building just to mock them one more time, and he jumps. Now, actually, when he jumps, he doesn't see that just two stories below that jump, there's a window washer platform, and he hits that platform, and he would not have died 
had it not been that the moment he passed the window of his parents' apartment, that that father had finally gotten out that gun and was waving around at his wife, and it went off, and it hit the son as he passed by the window. And now you know the rest of the story. That's a wild coincidence. How could you mark that exact moment where this shotgun blast goes through a window, hits somebody, and kills him, and he wouldn't have died anyway? And how does that all come together? You listen to Jeremiah and what he says, Matthew and what they say, Deuteronomy 30 and Rachel's story and what it says, Romans chapter 8, how God puts all things back together. We've been reading through Deuteronomy in our Bible reading plan this week, and you listen to how God sweetly returns to people. If you've been separated, I'll bring you back. You've lost your land, I'll bring it back. If, if you have lost your resources, I will bring it back. He will dot every I and cross every T. That's the promise of in our struggles, not only do we get his comfort and his presence, but God in his sovereignty and power will even work out his purposes for good that those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And Matthew knows that. Matthew also knows when he writes this, he doesn't just know the Christmas story. He knows Good Friday, and he knows Easter. He knows that this child of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, is working salvation for all the children of Bethlehem and for everyone else who believes. The only boy ever to escape Herod is the one, is the one who can bring comfort to Rachel. And that's what he does, and that's what we celebrate this morning, as again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I encourage you to go back to that. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Jeremiah knew that. Rachel knew that. Joseph and Mary knew that. The Corinthians uh, knew that. And Pamela knew that. You may know of her foundation, the Rachel Foundation for people who are suffering Really, the, the word she uses is reintegration for families. And that's, you think about that, well, it's called the Rachel Foundation. It must be because of a child named Rachel. No, it's because of this story. This is a story of a woman whose children were taken from her because her father, or excuse me, her husband, was involved in a cult and had been manipulating the children for years and had turned the children against the mother. And eventually, the, the, the family was separated. And she, so she started a foundation trusting this story. And I say trusting this story. She had had enough with trusting in God and actually had taken up her Bible when her children were lost and was going to throw it. And something in her said, no, just read it. And so she took it open and opened it up. And looked, and there's Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, Rachel's weeping for her children and that God will redeem and return them. She took the Bible, threw it down on the floor, and says, I can't believe that now. And a voice within her, the Lord spoke to her and said, take it up and read. She says, take it up and read. Look, even if I wanted to find that passage again, I couldn't find it. I just opened it up. I didn't even look at the chapter or the title. Pick it up and read. Much like Luther, pick up and read. Picks up and read, opens it up, right to the same page. There's Rachel, Rachel weeping for her children. That which was has been lost will be returned. And so she begins this ministry, this ministry of trying to reconnect family after addiction, after alienation, trusting that the Lord will do the work that he said he'll do. And you and I, we don't always get our answers. She's gotten at least one of her answers. One of her children has come back. God's been faithful in that. But even when you and I don't get that answer, we have this reminder here from Scripture that God will be with us in our suffering and he knows what we go through. 
and that he will be enough and we can trust him and his, and his, and his power and his compassion. There are so many weird stories about this season. Have you, have you read these stories? These stories about what happened when the holy families running to Egypt, stories of how they were robbed by a bunch of robbers. You won't find this any of this in Scripture. But they were robbed by some robbers, and one of the robbers, and one story even says he tried to stop the robbery, was the thief on the cross that came to saving faith on the cross. That's one of the stories. Another story is they were hiding from the Romans, right, because Herod's connected with them, so they're searching for people who have tried to flee to escape uh, the slaughter of the innocents. So they hide in a cave, and so this spider makes a web over the cave. Some, you won't find this on Wikipedia e- either, but this is where we get tinsel from. That's some people's theory. Uh, you get to, but the spider covered the door, and so the Romans didn't want to break that beautiful, intricate web, and the holy family was spared. That's not what you get in Scripture. You get real people who are racing for their lives. You get a real person like Rachel weeping for her child. And yet, God is enough because 2 Corinthians says it's the God of compassion. That word that means your belly will turn over and over again till it comes out. If we're in a season now, especially for many of us, this is a hard season. The God of comfort and the God of compassion will be with you. And if it's not a hard season for you, it's a hard season for somebody you love. And that's one of the things I love about our church family. Whether it's Operation Christmas Child or why not now in the beginning of the, in the middle of the Christmas season going to inner city Jackson or what you're doing through your Sunday schools to take the gospel to people that we don't know very well, but you're taking that work or taking offerings to go and share. We're even having Celebrate Recovery on Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. Who would do that? That's my family time. And my wife's going to be up there. Of course you do it. Why? Because there's Rachels of this world who are weeping and they need the church to be the church. They need the Christmas people of God to remember it's Christmas. And Christmas on every page is surrounded by people who are struggling. How is it you and I will take this good news that God is present and God has sent the very person of God, the second, the second person of the Holy Trinity for us in our struggles. He knows what we go through, and he died for that. God took his life back up, and he will redeem all those struggles someday. But in the meantime, as we said Wednesday night at our Advent study through Dr. Rick Boyd, it's not just we wait for the second Advent. It's a threefold Advent. God is here right now. And you get to be a part of being his good news to others who are struggling. Let's pray about that. Father, I pray for everyone in this room who may be going through a difficult time with family or through work or even in their walk with you. Remind them again of your goodness and faithfulness to your people. Even when Rachel struggled or in Jeremiah when the people of God struggled or or when the Holy Family struggled, you showed up again and again with your goodness and with your grace. May we claim that today, you being the God of compassion and comfort. May we know that but also continue to open our eyes and our hearts to those around us who are going through difficult days. Help us to be your words, your hands, your feet, your grace to a world, a world in darkness. We know that at Christmas you sent the one who is the light of the world. Bless us to be bearers of that light. And it is in the name of Christ that we pray for his glory and for the blessings of others. Amen.